Chapters twenty four and twenty five of the Mill Mystery by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty four Confronted. Being in the confessional, I have not forborne to tell the worst of myself. I will not, therefore, hesitate to tell the best. When on that very afternoon I entered Mrs. Pollard's grounds, it was with a resolve to make her speak out that had no element of weakness in it. Not her severest frown, nor that diabolical look from Guy's eye which had hitherto made me quail, should serve to turn me aside from my purpose, or thwart those interests of right and justice which I felt were so deeply at stake. If my own attempt, backed by the disclosures which had come to me through the prayer-book I had received from Mr. Pollard, should fail, then the law should take hold of the matter and wrench the truth from this seemingly respectable family, even at the risk of my own happiness and the consideration which I had always enjoyed in this town. The house, when I approached it, struck me with an odd sense of change— I did not stop at the time to inquire why this was, but I have since concluded, in thinking over the subject, that the parlour curtains must have been drawn up, something which I do not remember ever having seen there before or since. The front door also was ajar, and when I rang the bell it was so speedily answered that I had hardly time to summon up the expression of determination which I felt would alone gain me admittance to the house." but my presence, instead of seeming unwelcome, seemed to be almost expected by the servant who opened to me. He bowed, smiled, and that, too, in almost a holiday fashion, and when I would have asked for Mrs. Pollard, interrupted me by a request to lay off my overcoat in a side-room, which he courteously pointed out to me. There was something in this and in the whole aspect of the place which astonished me greatly. If this sombre dwelling, with its rich but dismally dark halls and mysterious recesses, could be said to ever wear an air of cheer, the attempt certainly had been made to effect this to-day. From the hand of the bronze figure that capped the newel-post hung wreaths of smilax, and a basketful of the most exquisite flowers while from a half-open door at my right came a streak of positive light and the sound of several voices, animated with some sentiment that was strangely out of accord with the solemn scene to which this very room had so lately been a witness. "'Can they be having a reception?' I asked myself, and almost ashamed of the surmise, even in the house of one so little respected, I nevertheless turned to the civil servant before me and remarked, there is something going on here of which I was ignorant. Is Mrs. Pollard entertaining guests to-day?' "'Did you not know, sir?' he inquired. "'I thought you had been invited, perhaps. Miss Pollard is going to be married this afternoon.' "'Miss Pollard going to be married? Could anything have been worse?' Shocked, I drew back. Miss Pollard was a beautiful girl, and totally innocent in as far as I knew of any of the wrong which had certainly been perpetrated by some members of her family. It would never do to mortify her or to mar the pleasure of her wedding day by any such scene as my errand probably involved. She must be saved sorrow even if her mother— but at that instant the vague but pathetic form of another young girl flitted in imagination before my eyes, 
and I asked myself if I had not already done enough injury to the helpless and the weak, without putting off, for another hour even, that attempt at rescue which the possibly perilous position of Mr. Pollard's grandchild so imperatively demanded. As I thought this, and remembered that the gentleman to whom Miss Pollard was engaged was an Englishman of lordly connections and great wealth, I felt my spirit harden and my purpose take definite form. Turning, therefore, to the servant before me, I inquired if Mrs. Pollard was above or below, and learning that she had not yet come downstairs, I tore a leaf out of my notebook and wrote on it the following lines. I know your daughter is on the point of descending to her marriage. I know also that you do not want to see me. But the interests of Miss Merriam demand that you should do so, and that immediately. If you do not come, I shall instantly enter the parlour and tell a story to the assembled guests which will somewhat shake your equanimity when you come to appear before them. My moral courage is not to be judged by my physical, madam, and I shall surely do this thing. David Barrows the servant, who still lingered before me, took this note. "'Give it to Mrs. Pollard,' I requested. "'Tell her it is upon a matter of pressing importance, but do not mention my name, if you please. She will find it in the note.' And seeing by the man's face that my wishes would be complied with, I took up my stand in a certain half-curtained recess, and waited with loudly beating heart for the issue. She came. I saw her when she first put foot on the stairs, and, notwithstanding my strong antipathy, I could not repress a certain feeling of admiration from mixing with the dread the least sight of her always occasioned me. Her form, which was of the finest, was clad in heavy black velvet, without a vestige of ornament to mar its sombre richness, and her hair, now verging towards grey, was piled up in masses on the top of her haughty head, adding inches to a height that in itself was almost queenly. But her face, and her cruel eye, and the smile of her terrible lip! I grew cold as I saw her approach, but I did not move from my place or meditate the least change in the plan I had laid for her subjection. She stopped just two feet from where I stood, and without the least bend of her head or any gesture of greeting, looked at me. I bore it with quietude, and even answered glance with glance, until I saw her turn pale with the first hint of dismay which she had possibly ever betrayed. Then I bowed and waited for her to speak. She did so with a hiss like a serpent. "'What does this mean?' she cried. "'What do you hope to gain from me that you presume to write me such a letter on an occasion like this?' "'Madam,' I rejoined, "'you are in haste, and so am I. So, without expressing any opinion of the actions which have driven me to this step, I will merely say that I want but one thing of you, but that I want immediately, without hesitation and without delay. I allude to Miss Miriam's address, which you have, and which you must give me on the spot.' She shrank. This cold, confident, imperious woman shrank, and this expression of emotion, while it showed she was not entirely without sensation, awoke within me a strange fear, since how dark must be her secret if she could tremble at the thought of its discovery. She must have seen that I was affected, for her confidence immediately returned. 
"'I do not know,' she began to say, but I mercilessly interrupted her. "'But I know,' said I, with an emphasis on the pronoun, "'and know so much that I am sure the company within would be glad to hear what I could tell them. Mr. Harrington, for instance, who I hear is of a very honourable family in England, would be pleased to learn—' "'Hush!' she whispered, seizing my wrist with a hand of steel. "'If I must tell you, I will. But no more words from you, do you hear? No more words!' I took out my notebook and thrust it into her hand. Write, I commanded, her full address, mind you, that I may find her before the day is over. She gave me a strange glance, but took the book and pencil without a word. There, she cried, hurriedly writing a line and passing the book back to me. And now go, our time for further conversation will come later. But I did not stir. I read aloud the line she had given me, and then said, "'Madam, this address is either a true or a false one, which I shall soon know, for upon leaving here I shall proceed immediately to the telegraph office, from which I shall telegraph to the police station nearest to this address for the information I desire. I shall receive an answer within the hour, and if I find you have deceived me, I shall not hesitate to return here, and so suitably accompanied that you will not only open to me, but rectify whatever mistake you may have made. Your guests will not be gone in an hour, I ruthlessly added. Her face, which had been pale, turned ghastly. Glancing up at a clock which stood a few feet from the recess in which we stood, she gave an involuntary shudder and looked about for Guy. "'Your son, fertile as he is in resources, cannot help you,' I remarked. "'There is no pit of darkness here. Besides, I have learned a lesson, madam, and not death itself would deter me now from doing my duty by this innocent child. So if you wish to change this address—' I stopped. A strain of music had risen from the parlour. It was Mendelssohn's wedding march. Mrs. Pollard started, cast a hurried look above, and tore the notebook out of my hands. "'You are a fiend!' she hissed, and hurriedly scratching out the words she had written, she wrote another number and name. "'You will find she is there,' she cried, "'and since I have complied with your desire, you will have no need to return here till you bring the young girl home.' The emphasis she placed on the last word startled me. I looked at her and wondered if Medea wore such a countenance when she stabbed her children to the heart. But it flashed and was gone, and the next moment she had moved away from my side and I had stepped to the door. As I opened it to pass out, I caught one glimpse of the bride as she came down the stairs. She looked exquisite in her simple white dress, and her face was wreathed in smiles. End of chapter 24 Chapter 25 The Final Blow The distrust which I felt for Mrs. Pollard was so great that I was still uncertain as to whether she had given me the right address. I therefore proceeded to carry out my original design and went at once to the telegraph office. The message I sent was peremptory and in the course of half an hour this answer was returned. Person described, found. Condition critical. Come at once. There was a train that left in fifteen minutes. Though I had just come from Boston, I did not hesitate to return at once. By six o'clock of that day, I stood before the house to which I had been directed. My first sight of it struck me like death. 
God, what was I about to encounter? What sort of a spot was this, and what was the doom that had befallen the child committed to my care? Numb with horror, I rang the doorbell with difficulty, and when I was admitted by a man in the guise of an officer, I felt something like an instantaneous relief, though I saw by his countenance that he had anything but good news to give me. "'Are you the gentleman who telegraphed from S?' he asked. I bowed, not feeling able to speak. "'Relative or friend?' he went on. "'Friend,' I managed to reply. "'Do you guess what has happened?' he inquired. "'I dare not,' I answered, with a fearful look about me on walls that more than confirmed my suspicions. "'Miss Miriam is dead,' he answered. I drew a deep breath. It was almost a relief. "'Come in,' he said, and opened the door of a room at our right. When we were seated, and I had by careful observation made sure we were alone, I motioned for him to go on. He immediately complied. When we received your telegram, we sent a man here at once. He had some difficulty in entering, and still more in finding the young lady, who was hidden in the most remote part of the house. But by perseverance and some force, he at last obtained entrance to her room, where he found— pardon my abruptness, it will be a mercy to you for me to cut the story short, that he had been ordered here too late. The young lady had taken poison and was on the point of death. The horror in my face reflected itself faintly in his. I do not know how she came to this house, he proceeded, but she must have been a person of great purity and courage, for though she died almost immediately upon his entrance, she had time to say that she had preferred death to the fate that threatened her, and that no one would mourn her, for she had no friends in this country, and her father would never hear how she died. I sprang wildly to my feet. Did she mention no names, I asked? Did she not say who brought her to this hell of hells, or murmur even with her dying breath one word that would guide us in fixing this crime upon the head of her who is guilty of it? No, answered the officer. No, but you are right in thinking it was a woman. But what woman the creature below evidently does not know. Feeling that the situation demanded thought, I composed myself to the best of my ability. I am the Reverend David Barrows of S., said I, and my interest in this young girl is purely that of a humanitarian. I have never seen her. I do not even know how long she has been in this country. But I learned that a girl by the name of Grace Miriam had been beguiled from her boarding place here in the city, and fearing that some terrible evil had befallen her, I telegraphed to the police to look her up. The officer bowed. "'The number of her boarding-place?' asked he. "'I told him, and, not waiting for any further questions, "'demanded if I might not see the body of the young girl. "'He led me at once to the room in which it lay, "'and stood respectfully at the door while I went in alone. "'The sight I saw has never left me. "'Go where I will, I see ever before me that pure young face, "'with its weary look hushed in the repose of death. It haunts me, it accuses me, it asks me where is the noble womanhood that might have blossomed from this sweet bud had it not been for my pusillanimity and love of life. But when I try to answer, I am stopped by that image of death 
with its sealed lips and closed eyes never to open again never never whatever my longing my anguish or my despair but the worst shock was to come yet as i left the room and went stumbling down the stairs i was met by the officer and led again into the apartment i had first entered on the ground floor there is some one here he began whom you may like to question thinking it to be the woman of the house i advanced though somewhat reluctantly when a sight met my eyes that made me fall back in astonishment and dread it was the figure of a woman dressed all in grey with a dark blue veil drawn tightly over her features good god i murmured who is this the woman who brought her here observed the officer farrell there has just found her and then i perceived darkly looming in the now heavy dusk the form of another man whose unconscious and business-like air proclaimed him to be a member of the force her name is sophie preston the officer continued motioning to the woman to throw up her veil she is a hard character and some day will have to answer for her many crimes meanwhile i stood rooted to the ground the name the face were strange and neither that of her whom i had inwardly accused of this wrong i should like to ask the woman i commenced but here my eyes fell upon her form it was tall and it was full but it was not by any means handsome a fearful possibility crossed my mind approaching the woman closely i modified my question are you the person who took this young lady from her boarding-place i asked yes sir was the reply uttered in smooth but by no means cultivated tones and by what arts did you prevail upon this young and confiding creature to leave her comfortable home and go out into the streets with you she did not speak she smiled oh heaven what depths of depravity opened before me in that smile answer the officer cried well sir i told her she now replied that i was such and such a relative grandmother i think i said and being a dutiful child but i was now up close to her side and leaning to her very ear i interrupted her tell me on which side of the hall was the parlour into which you went the right she answered without the least show of hesitation wrong i returned you have never been there she looked frightened oh sir she whispered hush hush if you know and there she stopped and instantly cried aloud in a voice that warned me i should make nothing by pressing my suspicions at this time and in this place i lured the young lady from her home and i brought her here if it is a criminal act i shall have to answer for it we all run such risks now and then to me with my superior knowledge of all the mysteries which lay behind this pitiful tragedy her meaning was evident whether she had received payment sufficient for the punishment possibly awaiting her or whether she had been frightened into assuming the responsibility of another she was evidently resolved to sustain her role of abductress to the end the look she gave me at the completion of her words intensified this conviction and not feeling sufficiently sure of my duty to dispute her at the present time i took advantage of her determination and outwardly if not inwardly accepted her confession as true i therefore retreated from her side 
and being anxious to avoid the coroner who was likely to enter at any minute i confined myself to asking a few leading questions which being answered in a manner seemingly frank i professed myself satisfied with the result and hastily withdrew End of chapter 25